0: So we got the opportunity yesterday to go to Fayetteville. Uh, My boss gave me some tickets. It's always fun when you get to go to a free Razorback game, right? Um, So I saw the debacle that was the free Razorback game. I'm like super, like super hot. I think we're adjusting that. Sweet. Um, Saw the debacle that was the Razorback game yesterday and uh, got really good seats to see us get blown out by North Texas. So that was Exciting, um, but I wanted to start my visit with you in Jonesboro by saying, um, and I'm probably going to butcher this. Wolves up, is that right? Yeah, I've seen the error of my ways after a 44 to 17 shellacking yesterday, and so I'm looking for a new team. And hear that you guys are are doing fairly decent. So, if you'll permit me to the the Red Wolf family, I might be interested. Um, so I'm super excited to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm definitely glad to be back with you. Uh, my name is Gage. I'm uh, an intern at Christ Church Conway going through the ordination process uh, through the PCA. I'm about six classes or so, if I, we can ever finish. Um, the way through a uh, master's in theology, and then we'll work through exams and things like that in order to be ordained through the PCA. Um, I'm originally from the great metropolis of West Memphis. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, booming metropolis that it is. Um, we used to always come up to Jonesboro when we didn't really want to fool with Memphis, when you wanted to go shopping and, and do something fun besides circle around Walmart and West Memphis and go to Crystal's, right? Um, so I'm definitely excited to be here, have a special place in my heart uh, for Jonesboro love. Uh, Jeff and his family and, and what you guys are, are doing here. I'm definitely excited to be back. If you have your Bibles, if you would, uh, open them up to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. As we, We're going to be in the first eight verses today. If, as we dig in, and want to lay a little bit of groundwork. So you can understand the context of the argument that Paul makes. Because he spends really two and a half chapters making an argument based off of a strong thesis that he introduces in chapter 1. Uh, to give you context of the church in Rome, the church at Rome um, started out, Clement was the emperor and he uh, made a decree that the Jews needed to leave Rome. And so they scattered. Um, And so you had a church that started out that was primarily Jewish, had a mass exodus, had the Gentiles who were coming to faith and starting to kind of migrate into the church at Rome, and then after Clement died, the Jews came back, and now you have this mixture of Jew and Gentile congregation that Paul is writing to. That seems kind of weird to us, but... Given the context, it's probably easier for us to think in terms of those of us that have grown up in church, those of us that have a religious background, those of us that are a grandma or a mom or whoever drug us to church every Sunday, and we're in Sunday school and went to church camp and experienced all the kind of culture of southern evangelicalism, and those of us that are just now maybe figuring out this thing called Christianity, if you can imagine. The mixture of those congregations, that's the church at Rome. And Paul starts out with this strong statement in chapter 1 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he lays out his argument starting in, in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is. Is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he unpacks it for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their ungodliness suppress the truth. That we know of God, we can see evidence of God in creation, that what can be known about God is made plain to us ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we're without excuse. But Although we see this evidence, we choose not to acknowledge this evidence. And instead, we constantly exchange the glory of the immortal God for things resembling mortal man and birds and air. And you say, well, Gage, I don't worship birds or air, but how often do you worry about what someone else thinks of you? How often are you constantly trying to find something else to satisfy you, something else to find your hope, identity, and security and that isn't God. Now you're on level playing field with the Romans. And as he lays out this argument, he's pushing against this idea that so often we hear when I, when I have conversations with people when I talk about their faith, even those that would profess themselves to be Christians, those that have grown up in what we call the Bible Belt, they'll often tell me that they're just trying to be really good people. That the, that the gospel is, as long as I'm, I'm pretty good, as long as I'm not a terrible person, as long as my good outweighs my bad, that God should love me. The problem is, that's not the gospel. and That's not what the scripture says. And here, Paul is actually pushing back against Those in Rome, this group that seemed to have followed him, regardless of whether he was in Ephesus or Galatia or wherever, these Judaizers that would have pushed against this idea and they would have said that in order for God to find favor with you, you have to obey. And here Paul is going to lay out this argument that it's not the law that saves us. It's Christ that the law was instituted to lead us to Christ, that we lay in this situation here of the law versus righteousness outside of the law. And here, whether you're a Jew, those who have grown up with the traditions, you were given the oracles of God, you were given the stories, you had the festivals, you had the sacrificial system, you had the five first five books of the Old Testament, you had all the stories, all the traditions, all the sacrifices, all the ordinances, all the promises that were given to you, and yet so often they found their satisfaction, their hope, identity, and security in something else other than the God who rescued them from Egypt. Egypt. And then you have the Gentiles who didn't grow up with this tradition, right? Much of, like maybe some of you who didn't grow up in church. You don't really know the, the Bible that well. You've maybe only been coming here a couple of weeks. You're still trying to figure this thing out. Someone invited you here. You've tried a bunch of other things. You thought, why not Jesus? Paul speaks to you as well because he talks about the Gentiles and he says that they live as if the law is written on their hearts that oftentimes they will find their way to some sort of sense of morality and it kind of culminates in chapter three when he says in verse nineteen now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped so who's under the law well all of us either you were given the law in your tradition Or the law has been written on your heart. But either way, the law stands in front of you. And we're under it. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So this idea, whether it's the Ten Commandments or by the time of Christ, the 600 laws that have been added to the Ten Commandments, This idea that if I work really hard, if I try really hard to be good, if I white-knuckle my way through it, if I outweigh my good with my bad, then I'll be okay. The problem is the Scriptures speak against you. The Scriptures instead tell us the reality of ourselves. And what's that reality? Chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. Our throats are an open grave. The venom of asper on our lips that left to ourselves, we will choose sin every time. And the, the only thing that the law is going to tell you is you desperately need a Savior. You desperately need grace and hope because you trying really hard is not going to get it because you're going to fail and when you fail you're going to feel guilt and in that guilt the guilt is going to crush you without hope the law doesn't give you knowledge of salvation the law is a guide and a tutor to tell you you need a savior And as Paul's laying this idea out, that this idea of justification isn't by obedience, that we are justified, that is, we are declared righteous by God through faith because what Christ has done, not because of what you have done, that this idea isn't something new. They would have pushed back against Paul and said, no, it's about obedience. I need to keep the law. I need to be a good Jew. And these pagans, I don't know that they can be in in our church because they don't understand the traditions. They don't keep themselves clean. They they don't know how we do things here. We've never really thought that about lost people before, right, churchgoers? You've never had the thought that I kind of have it together and I wish wish they would kind of get it together, right? We don't know anything about that. We don't hold this high standard that you need to watch these certain movies and listen to certain music and vote this certain way. We don't have that at all, right? So here, you have this culture pushing against what Paul is saying and they're they're pressing him and saying, hey, the Scriptures don't say that. And Paul is about to unveil this bombshell that this, this is all the Scriptures have ever said. That... Even though you may have grown up in the traditions and been given the scriptures and you should have known this, somehow you missed it, let me help you. And Paul isn't pointing the finger as if he's got it figured out and you don't. Paul, in another letter to the church in Philippi, is going to say, look, I get it. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, As far as the law, I was a zealot. No one was as, as zealous for the law as I was and it was a pile of rubbish and in comparison to the glory of God it didn't matter that's not what gets the approval of God because the reality of the matter is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and so then he's gonna lay out this idea That righteousness, the right standing before God, the thing that we need to be able to stand before God because we can't come to Him in sin. He's holy. He can't let sin in His presence. We need a Savior. We need something to happen. This righteousness was revealed apart from the law. And it was revealed in Christ that God, in His divine forbearance, over former sins. This is how we know that the Old Testament saints were saved in the same exact way. Because it's the way that God can look at David and speak through the prophet Nathan when he slept with Bathsheba and say, Your sins are forgiven. How is that possible prior to the cross? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That this idea that you are declared righteous before God has always been the plan. That the history of redemption has been culminating and pointing in all different types and shadows to the one that is going to come and fulfill the law where we can't. And live a life of obedience where we can't. And be the perfect sacrifice where we're not and raised from the dead to purchase our salvation for us. Martin Luther called this section the center of the, on which the entire Bible is built. And so, Paul, being a good lawyer, isn't going to ask a question he doesn't already know the answer to. And he begins chapter 4, having laid the, the groundwork that I shared with you to these people, anticipating the argument that is going to come. And he asks this question. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So, Paul is anticipating the argument from the Judaizers. But Paul, look, I get that you're arguing for this justification by faith noise. But if you go back and look at Abraham, you can see that he was declared righteous by his obedience. And Paul's going to push him and say, okay, let's talk about Abraham. And that's what leads us into chapter 4. I'm going to read the first eight verses and then we'll dig in. but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Christ's Redeemer in Jonesboro. May you be glorified as you are worthy of all praise in a word and deed. May you be glorified by the preaching of your word. Will you help come send your spirit, do the thing that I can't do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... Paul asks this question. If you have a a New American Standard Bible, it asks it slightly different. Instead of asking what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, the New American Standard asks the question, what did Abraham find? What was found by Abraham? It's an interesting question. Here Paul wants to take us all the way back to the beginning and the story of Abraham. Why? Because in Paul's day, the Jews would have seen Abraham as the founder of everything. He's the founder of the nation of Israel. He's the reason that they are even Jews, right? He's the one that was given the covenant. He's the one that was given the sign of circumcision. He was the one that was given the promise of the, the nations coming from Abraham. That the nations would be blessed. That from his offspring would come descendants as many as the sand and the stars. Abraham, this great patriarch of their faith. And here, he's going to agree with them. Okay, yeah, I agree about all that with Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham for a second, though. Because in Paul's day, they would have gone further than that. Even prior to Paul, prior to Jesus, there are rabbis who wrote this idea that Abraham was perfect. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't need repentance because it was their obedience that had made them right before God. It's bad theology, but that's what was going on. That Abraham would have been this absolute standard Perfection. But let's go back to the story. God calls Abraham from the land of Ur, right? To go walk and find a land that he was going to give him that he had never seen. So he's walking and hoping for the best. This pagan worshiping Gentile who isn't a Jew because there is no circumcision yet, there is no promise. He's a Gentile walking aimlessly trying to find this land. And here, Paul's going to ask the question in such a way. So let's go back and ask, what really did Abraham find? And he quotes Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 to make his argument. For if, Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul has just laid out this argument previously at the end of chapter 3 of this idea of boasting. That this idea that you could somehow put God in your debt by how good you are. Let me tell you, Lord, how many Bible studies I go to. Let me tell you how many podcasts I listen to. Let me tell you how many books I read. Let me tell you how I only listen to K-Love. Let me tell you how, and like on and on and on and on and on and on and on. As if your boasting somehow gives you some sort of expertise. As if God looks out in the world and says, well... Gage sure seems to got it together because he's checking all these boxes all make him righteous because he's got it together. And yet we live life that way. Even those that, of us that profess faith in Christ will sing the songs and pray the prayers and hear the word preached and on, on Monday will think, I need to make sure and, and, and have it all together. I need to work really, really hard. Otherwise God may not love me. We may not say it that way, but we live life that way. We try to make sure we're doing all these things and working really, really hard and making sure we're checking all these boxes so that on the off chance that we don't, we don't know if God will still love us. And here, as he leads into chapter 4, he reduces the boasting to nothing. That your boasting doesn't mean anything. Because the only boasting you really have is your utter dependence on a Savior. Because left to yourself and left to myself, the thing that we would choose if it wasn't for the intervening of God through the Spirit would be sin. And so he lays out this question. What was it that Abraham found? What was gained by Abraham? When he went out, what did he find? And here he goes back to Genesis 15, because it's in Genesis 15 that God speaks to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And here, there's that connection back from chapter 3 in Romans, where he talks about, Is God just the God of Jews? No, he's the God of Gentiles also. Why? Because he took a Gentile and made him a Jew and gave him the same promise so that we, as little kids, can sing the great covenant song, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? He's the father of everything. My Baptist friends taught me that song, which is a whole nother discussion. I'll I'll leave that for Jeff. But, here, Abraham is given this promise, and he says, yeah, but I don't have a son. The closest I have is this Eleazar and I gotta give him everything according to inheritance and God says no I'm gonna give you a son and I want you to look at the stars and if you can count them that's how many descendants you're going to have and then I want you to wh- then what happens next verse 6 Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness but notice what happens In 15 through 17. When he goes to make good on his promise. And he puts the covenant together. Abraham gets knocked out. Abraham is asleep. Abraham splits these animals. He's fighting off the birds. And the vultures. He's waiting on God to show up. God then shows up. Abraham's in a deep slumber. It's God who gives him the promise. It's God who walks through pieces. It's God who enacts the covenant. It's God who says, if this doesn't work, may what's happening to these birds happen to me. If you fail at this covenant, may the punishment of your failure be put on me. And that's exactly what he did. We failed and he put the punishment on himself. The second person of the Trinity taking our failure and our punishment on himself. So what did Abraham find? Abraham found that he would be declared righteous, holy, clean, by faith. Not because he did anything. Because when you go back and look at it, Abraham didn't do anything. Abraham was asleep. God did everything. In the same way, we can say the same is true for our salvation. It wasn't that we had some intellectual dissent. It wasn't that we got it all together. It wasn't that we even cleaned ourselves up. It was that we were sinners, broken, needed to be put back together, and God rescued you from yourself. So notice what he says. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham did all these things of obedience, then sure, he could brag a little bit, but God's not interested in it. So what good does it matter that you can brag to your friends about how holy you are if the one on whom you're accountable to doesn't see it that way? If, as Jeremiah says, your righteousness are like filthy rags to me what difference does it make that you can look to the person on left and go well let me tell you how awesome i am the one that really knows you isn't interested in that and that's what he's the point he's making here and then what he says is interesting he says so what does the scripture say See, so often we create this idea in our mind of what we think salvation and faith are about, and we paint this picture of who God is in our mind, and ultimately we end up worshiping our own idea of who God is and what he demands rather than who he actually is and what he's actually said. And so Paul very clearly looks at them and says, hey, you can say all these things about Abraham you want, but what does the Scripture say? Scripture tells us that Abraham wasn't this great patriarch of faith. Scripture tells us the reality about Abraham is that not once, but twice, for fear of his life, so that the king wouldn't kill him, he said, this isn't my wife, that's my sister. Guys, look at me. I've only been married eight years. That's a, I still think that's a bad move. That's a bad move. But he didn't do it once. He did it twice for fear that God couldn't protect him, that God really wouldn't do what he said he was going to do, that he was going to die right there at the hand of a king. This is my sister. Yeah, sure, if you want to marry her, have at it. Could you imagine that conversation? I know how that conversation goes in the car. Oh, I'm your sister, huh? Noted. <laughs> right? It's bad, but not only does he do that, he disciples his son to do the same thing because Isaac runs into the same king and he goes, Oh, I know how to get out of this. He's going to whoop me. That's my sister. And luckily the king goes, No, I've been here before. I know how this works. I know how your family operates. They're not good people. They don't have it all together. They're not great moral standards. They're broken sinners desperately in need of a Savior. And guess what? So are you. The good news is, Jesus loves you anyway. And so here, Paul says, it's great for you to paint this picture of who Abraham is in your mind. And you have all these traditions and you have all this ideology that if you obey all the time and make sure you check... Check all the boxes and cross all the T's and dots all, all the I's. That's how God will love you. And Paul just looks at them and says, That sounds great, but what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says Abraham believed God. Didn't work. Didn't get it all together. Didn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He simply believed. And the beautiful thing about this passage that Paul wants you to understand, is this is the first time that the word believe is ever used in the scriptures. It's as if God wanted you to see that the story is the same all across the board. So let's start with the guy that we start everything else with. From Abraham comes the rest of Israel, and ultimately it's through the seed of Abraham That the nations are blessed because it's through the seed of Abraham that the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. All throughout history, all throughout the history of redemption, all throughout the scriptures, it's not a different idea. It's not as if Paul's coming up with something new. He's telling you it's been the same way from the beginning. That the way that we are declared righteous before God is admitting we've got nothing. That nothing, like the hymnist says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, simply to the cross I cling. That it wasn't by his work that he was justified. It was by faith. Because it's through faith that the righteousness of God is revealed. Chapter 1, verse 17 of Romans. From faith, for faith, that the great exchange happens. This idea of the doctrine of imputation, that's a big theology word, right? It means that at the cross, your sin was put on Christ. In Christ's perfect standard, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy One, gives you His righteousness if we put our faith in Him. That those that put their faith, not in what I can do, not how great I can be, not how much I can have it all together, but ultimately that the only hope I have is Jesus. Those of us that put our faith in him, when God looks at you, dear brother and sister, he sees Jesus. And that's the point. That Abraham was a broken mess. That Isaac was a broken mess that Jacob was a con artist in a broken mess. And yet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob chose them anyway. Loved them anyway. That despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, despite anything we try to bring to impress him, he's not interested in any of that. He simply, as a loving father, has adopted you in his family because he wanted to. He knows who you are and knows who I am and wants you anyway. That's the good news of the gospel. And so here, he pushes that point that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the second half of the argument. He's going to unpack this idea of works versus a gift. Notice what he says, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he's saying, all right, so let's, let's tease out this idea of work for a second. We work all week, I work full time for a digital marketing company, I work part time for an organization called Choosing to Excel, and we go into the schools, and we teach about goal setting and decision making and building healthy relationships, but when I do all that and I invest all my time, when I get my paycheck, the thing I don't do is go, man, I wasn't expecting this. No, the thing that we do is what? If I ever see this dude named Fica, we're fighting. When I see him in the street, it's on. None of us would say, thanks boss, I sure didn't expect you to give me money for all the hours I put in. No, that's our due. So if we're justified by our due, it's not faith, it's work. But there's nothing that we can do that can put God in our debt. Because the reality of the matter is is if we were given our due, we would receive the wrath of God. Thank God you don't give us our due. You put our due on Jesus. But notice what he says, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. And then he makes another argument. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So here he plays on, has a play on words with this idea of the word count. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. As in, Abraham's sin was credited to Christ's account and Christ's perfect righteousness and holiness and standard was put on Abraham's account. It was counted as righteous, imputed to him. And Paul says, but this isn't just something that happened to Abraham. David would agree with me, too. David, the holy king who took another man's wife, killed that dude, and then thought he got away with it. David. And yet, notice what David says. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. So it's a a reverse. In the same way that our sins are counted on Christ's account and His perfect righteousness is counted onto our account through faith in Him, despite our sin, despite our failures, those of us that have faith in Jesus, our sins aren't counted against us. That he knows who you are and loves you anyway. And David says, for the person that gets that, for the person that understands that I don't have to work really hard to try to impress God, that the only hope I have is in the finished work of Jesus, that person is blessed because despite their failures and shortcomings, despite how they know themselves. God knows you even more and loves you anyway because of Jesus. That's the gospel. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Christ's Redeemer. May you take this word and let it not return void. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.